Hello, and thanks for finding us. Karam Deo is a local church in Denver, Colorado. We're a network of friends following Jesus together. Join us for preaching, teaching, announcements, and other musings. Yeah, Father, we thank you for Papa John, and we thank you for a, a life of hidden yeses and hidden faithfulness and tenderness to you. And, and to prioritizing what matters to you, prioritizing people. Um, I pray that tonight we'd, we'd learn, we'd get a revelation of your heart, the Father heart of God. We'd, we'd be filled with, with hope and resiliency in whatever season we find ourselves in, with you, God, with family, with work, with the pressures and toils of life. Um, yeah, so I just pray over the words of John's mouth that they would not just, not just be fun stories, but that they'd pierce into our hearts and that we'd hear your voice in them, God. Bless his words. We thank you for him and Mindy. We bless their family and all the relationships and people that they're stewarding right now in this season. Amen. Wow, that was crazy. Hey, you guys. It's so easy to love Matt and Ton and Dave and Katie. They, they are friends. And Amy, we just did finish a, a greenhouse with about six, seven of us. <coughs> and the, uh, <coughs> I have a, um, I'm not interested in programs. I, I don't. I found that programs tend to be very transactional, and I, I think that in our work we have to be transactional. There's certain things that have to be transacted, you know. Um, just like you have to buy and sell in in your in the world of business, you have to buy and sell. Just got to do it. And it's interesting that in the kingdom of God, we're called not to buy and sell only. We're called to give and receive. And we are called. Uh, in the kingdom of God, uh, we have not a transactional framework, but we have a relational framework where we don't trust a few people to get vision for everybody else. We, we believe that God has given every one of you a dream, a purpose, a divine seed. <clears throat> and sometimes your work or your business is the delivery system for that. And sometimes it's a lot bigger than what you're actually doing right now, right? You, you got ideas bigger than what you're actually doing. Then when you get into your 30s, late 30s and 40s, it gets, it's, the, the normal question is, is this all there is? It's very normal. Is this all there is? And so what, what I'd love to pass on to you tonight just a little bit about, it's not about us being faithful to God through our lifetime. It's about realizing that God has been faithful to you the whole time. When it, when it hits you that God himself is the faithful one, then when you don't feel very faithful, you won't wilt because you still have a faithful father that will pursue you. He loves you with an everlasting love and with the arms of love, he enfolds you, he pulls you in. There's an interesting scene in the book of Job. It starts in the very first chapter where God and Satan are having a little bargaining thing going on around the person of Job. <clears throat> uh, I don't want to go into the book of Job. It's one of the heavier books of the scriptures. But it's actually very simple. God has an agenda for his creation on earth. 
the enemy is completely committed to thwart that thing. And God wasn't so much wanting to see if, um, yeah, he wanted to see if Job was going to be faithful and stand up through all of this. Losing his family, losing his, his, his whole livelihood, his children, his cows, his cow, everything got taken away from him. And if you have your feet on the earth and you look at that story, it will make no sense to you. If you step into the throne room of heaven, if, as it were, metaphorically speaking, if you were to step up there and get God's perspective, he looks on all of his creation, not as residents of earth, but as pilgrims and sojourners. You're an alien. You're a resident alien. Believers. Us believers are resident aliens. And one of the greatest strategies of the enemy is to get you so earthbound that you can't understand what's happening in the spiritual realm around you. Now, the church has made a fundamental mistake historically over the years is to pull away from this world, right? We just pull out. We're just fortress. We'll go build monasteries and hide out and just do this with Jesus, you know? I'm all about monasteries. I think they're great, especially the ones that are engaged in social issues, especially the ones that are actually forming people into disciples to take the world to the Lord, and there are those. <coughs> So that heavenly picture of God and, and Satan going after old Job together, if you will, revealed that there was a wisdom on this earth that wasn't enough to help Job through his issues. He had three friends. And at the end of all of this pontificating, God says, who is this that darkens counsel with words without wisdom? Who is, where's all this rhetoric and all of this, you know, all this chatter that sounds so wise, it did nothing for Job because it was earthly. Their feet were on the ground and they were giving earthly counsel to this remarkable man. Then in the middle of the book, God just goes off on himself. He says, where were you when I created Leviathan? Where were you when I flicked the stars in space with my fingers, right? I mean, it's spectacular. It's just like God just saying, my ways are so much higher than your ways. Ecclesiastes, Solomon wrote a really cool little thing in chapter 4. He says, God is in heaven. You are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. I love that. In other words, shut up already. <laughs> because there's a heavenly perspective that God was determined to help Job see. And Job was over that book. He gets lifted up. And the culmination of it was when he looked at God and he said, I have heard of you with the hearing of my ear, but now I see you with my eye. It's gone from knowledge and earthly wisdom and earthly stuff, losing stuff, loved ones and wives. I mean, that's almost cruel. From, a, from an earthly and human perspective, what happened to Job was unconscionable. No one should have to go through that. And our justice chip checks, you know, rises inside of us. Like, How can I believe in a God who, because you don't know God. People that criticize God don't know God. Paul said, he's the potter, you're the clay. He can choose to make whatever he wants. From the human brain standpoint, that you can almost not rectify that. 
that almost is unsolvable. Like God never, he always existed. He never had a beginning. That one, I'll lay in bed and just blow a fuse. Trying to think about that God always was. There's no start to him. So I want to start a little bit by just saying God's really big. And one of the reasons we struggle in understanding things throughout life is he is trying to get your feet off the ground to get you. He says, we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ in Ephesians 2.6. He wants you to get that perspective so that he can send you back into the world armed with the stuff of the kingdom and the love of God. So we don't fortress. We don't pull back. Neither do we go in until we understand the heavenly perspective. Without that, you're going to get beat up really bad. And the beauty of getting beat up is he always takes you and redeems you, heals you, and sets you back. Always. So I was born and raised in Japan. 1952. So do the math. I'm 71. Um, my mom and dad were beautiful people. They were missionaries. Loved Jesus. You know, MacArthur, after World War II, gave a call out to missionaries to come to Japan. So my dad and mom listened. Uh, they went to Bible college. You had to go to Bible college. You couldn't be a missionary. You know, that was the prerequisite. So they go and they, they do the missionary thing. Itinerate. You know, you jump in a car and you just go raise money wherever you go to try to get enough money to go with your mission board to whatever field you were called to. <clears throat> so I was born... As a total surprise. My parents were told they couldn't have children. Um, and my mom made a deal with the Lord. said, if you'll give me a son, I will give you, I will give you, he will be mine. That's what the Lord told her. Sounds like Hannah, right? In the book of Samuel. If you give me that boy, he'll be mine. And you have no jurisdiction over the direction of his life. My parents never, in those 18 years that I lived at home, never try to steer me in a particular direction of career or ministry or any of that. It was always love Jesus and be like him and you'll, you'll figure it out. I'm very grateful for that. Mom and dad were really good Baptists. And one thing that they were unprepared for in Japan was the level of demonic activity. I was born into a culture that was highly demonic. And I didn't, uh, I, I, nobody was prepared for it. Um, we lived in a fishing village. I was the only little white, blonde haired kid. I had blonde hair back then, toe head. And they used to feel it to see what was real. And I'd ride on my dad's shoulders. We were at a festival where this. Shinto high priest was coming down with this kind of a boat, like it was like an ark on wheels. He's coming down, and he pulled me right off my dad's shoulders, took me in the back, molested me, and cursed my life. Laid a curse on my success so that I'd always be a failure in life. So at, at four years old, you don't know really what's happening to you. But I've had memories of it since, and I realized what happened some years later. Two years later, I was in my yard playing with my beautiful little doggy brownie. Brownie, me and brownie. I'd climb the tree and he'd sit at the bottom and just look at me. And this guy walked up, very nice young man, gave me candy and abducted me. And he was a Japanese sailor, took me and molested me. Um, they couldn't find me. Finally, he brought me back, which is a stupid thing to do. 
He brought me back, and the whole neighborhood was lined with Japanese throwing things at him and cursing him for having taken the little foreign boy. Um, when our house was given to us to rent, the Shinto priest came into the home to cleanse it from all the evil spirits, and all he did was put a whole pile of evil spirits into the, into the house. For those of us in a Western culture, this is a little unusual stuff. My playground was next to the Shinto shrine. I could tell you the prayers. I could quote, still quote, the prayers, Shinto prayers of the women ask, asking their spirits to take care of their dead children. They would put little, little statues outside called Jizo. And Jizo were little Buddha babies. They look like little Buddhas. And they, put, they clothe them with the clothes of the child that's deceased. And they put food at their feet so that they can have food in the afterlife and all this. You're just steeped in this stuff. Mom and dad uh, moved to Tokyo when I was six or seven and became dorm parents from missionary school. And I'm off having a fun day with one of my Swiss buddies. And we're, we were on a glass refuse pile where you just, the glass was fabulous. It was colored and we make mosaics and do all this stuff. And we were, our heads were down. And when we looked up, there's a guy standing right in front of us. Now, we were on a hill. There was nobody for a good half kilometer or so. There were nobody. There was no one around. And this guy materializes right in front of us, holds out a, a picture of a couple copulating, and said, this is the essence of life in Japanese. This is the essence of life. And we looked at each other totally shocked, like, you know, eight-year-old boys looking at these pictures way too early in life. And we turned back, and he was not there. He absolutely, this demon manifests himself into my life and put a curse on me again for sexual impropriety, for sexual promiscuity, for anything to do with sexual deviance. Um, I was told when I was seven or eight years old, about the same time I had some operations, and I was told I would never have children. Um, you have a 10% chance of having children. Uh, it, so those, those first eight or nine years were just packed with really bad news. I go to bed at night until I was seven or eight years old with just nightmares. And all I could see was the mask of that Shinto priest who wore a dragon costume into my bedroom to cleanse my room from evil spirits. And all I could see was that, that demonic image. I'd wake up screaming, my dad would come in, wouldn't know what to do, you know. What do you do? We weren't prepared to fight spiritual battles. We really weren't. We didn't realize what we were doing. We just came to preach the gospel, just love people, and be kind and nice, and they didn't want it. They really didn't want it. Um, this led me to a deep depression by the time I was 12. I was an absolute mess. And suicidal thoughts at 12... By 17, I was acting out. I was so angry. I was voted my senior year as the most talented guy in my class. It's not because I was so talented. It's because I was working so hard to be loved. I try everything. Sports. I was great in sports. Did really well in basketball. Well, I like art. Let's do art. I did really well in art. Well, how about music? Ah, let's try music. I really did well. Let's tell drama and acting. I did really great. I did really well at all that stuff. But I don't think I was all that good. I think I was just desperate to be loved and to be noticed. And a little message came into my head during those years. You're alone. You'll always be alone. 
And if you left the room, nobody would miss you. Okay? Picture that now. If that message is in a little heart, in a growing heart, a teenage heart, that message is embedded as your identity. That's who you are. It's going to alter everything you do. So what does God want to do? God is sitting in heaven, and he's having a, an, an, a debate with Satan. And I, it's something to the effect of, you're the prince of the earth. You can mess with my guys all you want. But I'll tell you what, I'm more faithful than you are bad. I'm greater. Greater is me that's in my, my children than you and all of your strategies. So I don't know that God had that conversation with Satan in heaven about me. I have no idea. But that idea was John Peterson needed to be lifted into the heavenly realm. I needed to get off the ground and get a whole different perspective of my life. So what did he do? At 17 years old, my buddies and I, 10 of us, went to a um, Bible camp, hated it, didn't want to be there. My, our mothers all sent us to try to straighten us out. We were a mess. And the only thing we could think of was bring as many firecrackers as you can to blow them up into the girls' cabins. <laughs> That's all we could think about. So we did. We had them all ready to go. We had crawled under there, you know, with the spiders and everything, you know, attaching these strings of Chinese crackers. Crackers, you know, and uh, we were required to go to this bonfire campsite thing, you know, and do the kumbaya crap. And I mean, I was a, I was really not happy with the missionary community. I was very judgmental. I didn't like the fact that they forced Western culture on people. I didn't like the fact that they were, they actually didn't like each other. There was very little unity in the missionary community. And I use that as a weapon against them. I was pissed. I was really angry. Um, long story. Some guy was teaching at this campfire. It was really boring. It meant nothing to me. And all of a sudden, I get conviction. It's just like <laughs> something smacked me inside. And I look at my buddy, and he's crying. I'm like, oh, boy, here we go. We're succumbing to this missionary baloney, you know. And that night, we went back to the room, 10 of us. We got in our room, and a lightning and thunderstorm hit off the Japan Sea. Man, those things are thunderous. Simultaneous lightning and thunder. Little wooden houses are doing this. Rain is just torrential. And we all came to the Lord in the same night. We all confessed. We all put our arms around each other and said, we're going back to the school, and we're going to change it for Jesus. And that was the beginning of the beginning of the start of the start of the end or something. <clears throat> I found myself on a plane. Good missionary boy, you know, you gotta go, you gotta go to Bible college. Because without that nothing would happen. Um, it just required. So I went, got there and realized I really don't want to be here. I don't know why I'm here. I couldn't decide what major. I mean it was just there I am in Biola University in Southern California, La Mirada, California, and it just so happened that I got the right roommate. And my roommate was from Phoenix, or Tucson, Arizona, and he came in one night and he said, dude, there is this church called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, and you gotta come see this thing. This is unbelievable. There's like 400, 500 people and it's a combination of straights and hippies. 
and the hippie thing had just gotten going in 6970. We were at Biola learning dispensational theology, that pretty much the gifts of the Spirit and all that had ended back in the first century. And lo and behold, I was I had a conflict going on inside my spirit. Because I go to that church at night, they had services every night. Eventually we moved from this building to a tent that held 4,000 people. We had hippies coming off of the beaches every day. We had these hippies, these guys, these guys were unbelievable. So I was a little Baptist kid, right? I'm dressed all proper, and they're coming in with the robes and the sandals and the braids and the, you know, um, they didn't have tattoos quite yet. Some of that was going on, but they did the henna tattoos, you know. Um, and so they, new believers, they'd come super early, sit outside in the lotus position, right? Lotus position is where the cosmic energy comes into your spine, and you sit there like a Buddha, you know, do the whole thing. That's all they knew. So they would sit cross like could do the Buddha thing. Energy, you know, cosmic energy. Instead, they had the Bible on their laps, and they had a weed, weed in their fingers. They were token, <laughs> reading scripture, and it, it, I thought, if my mom and dad could see this, they would just die. They would just fall over, you know, because this is like, there is nothing about this that they would approve of. Right men should not have long hair. Women should be submissive and all this, all this stuff. And the women are engaged and, you know, animated and in love with Jesus. They were freakazoids. They would, they would get in there and they'd worship God for the first time. They wrote songs out of, out of the scriptures. Um, the early, earliest Christian, popular Christian music started in, the, in those days. Maranatha music got started. Eventually, it, it caught all of our worship music got started in those days. Everyone else had hymn books, you guys. We had hymn books. And there was, there was nobody creating live songs on the spot, moved by the Spirit, inside the church during those days. And th that began to happen all over the country. The, the hunger for Jesus was so strong that you hardly had to share, share the Lord. There was an absolute commitment to just be available to people. I have so many stories. We had people who had angels visit them in the back seats of their cars and minister to them and then disappear out of the car. I mean, strange stuff. I saw a guy who had no eye grow an eye within a week, in a week's time. I saw him on one Sunday. He said, the Lord's going to heal my eye. And I said, oh, God bless you. And I was like, you're right. I came back the next week, and he said, you remember me? And he had a brand new eye, same color as the other eye. And I was seeing things, and I'm thinking, I can't tell my parents that this would not work. <laughs> it so impacted me that I, I said to the Lord, there's something here that I, I, don't, I don't have. I don't understand this kind of excitement about Jesus. It's all very cerebral. Um, I had a real encounter with the Lord, no doubt about it. I love Jesus. Uh, so I started going. I got wrecked. Long story, but I, I had an encounter with the Holy Spirit one night at what they called an afterglow, and this little 17-year-old hippie lays his hands on me and just says, receive the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, it's like oil went from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, and I started laughing. I couldn't, I couldn't stand. I had to sit down. and My roommate's really upset with me because he wanted all that manifestational stuff. And I said, I, 
I could care less about that. I just want more Jesus. I just, if he gives me a, if I ask for bread, he won't give me a stone. And sure enough, he was so faithful. God is faithful. And what he's trying to do in our lives from the very earliest is he is, his whole commitment is to get you to see Jesus in everything that happens. If you want to talk about being faithful over a lifetime, keep asking the question, where are you now? What are you doing now? What am I supposed to be learning now? If you get too focused on the future or too disappointed about what's happening now, you will miss the beauty of letting God do whatever he wants, frankly. Because there are times when he won't speak. There are times when he's just, just dead silent. It didn't change anything. Still loves you with an everlasting love. He still has got a plan for your life. And it, I guarantee you, whatever his plan for you is, it isn't the same as the one you have. I can just categorically say, you could never figure out now what will happen to you in 30 years. You'll never figure it out. You'll have aspects because of who you are. You are who you are, and that will continue to be. You will do what you're wired and designed by God to do. But the context of what you do and the level of influence that you can have, you have no idea. Are you happy not to know what's happening? Are you okay with that? Are you happy with ignorance? Slaves and orphans are never happy with ignorance. Sons are. People that feel unloved need to know so they can protect themselves and be safe so they can know what's happening. Ultimately, for, for slave people that are so committed to their work and getting their identity from their work, they need to know so they can control the, the environment. If you need to control the environment, God has a great plan for your life. He is going to do what he did to his own son. He's going to invite you to come onto a cross and have an exchange of life. Human improvement is not on God's agenda. God does not improve us. Today, I was better than I was yesterday. I performed better. I didn't yell at my wife today, and I did yesterday. My dog, I didn't kick my dog today. <laughs> the centrality of the gospel is the cross of Christ. That means, like Paul, I have suffered the loss of all things, Paul said, and I count them to be crap in view of the surpassing value of knowing him and having a righteousness that's of him. That's the goal, to be like Jesus. The goal isn't to be successful. Success is a byproduct of being in the heart of God and doing what he says and laying everything down so he can do it. That's, you want a faithful life? Lay it all down. Regularly, surrender the control. Even, even Isaac, who was promised to Abraham, who was the son of promise, the channel of all of Israel for the ongoing, uh, the ongoing uh, ancestry, the ongoing children, the progeny, all of that was through one little guy named Isaac. And God required for him to be sacrificed. And you know what God said to Abraham? Just as he was ready to cut his own son, he pulled back, the angel interrupted him, he pulled back her voice and interrupted him. And he said, now I know you love me more than anything. That's the goal. That's, that's where we find faithfulness. It's when we've laid it down and we can say, 
I think God knows I love him. I just really love him. And like Job, he can take anything away. God gives, God takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I know that my Redeemer stands and he lives and he will stand at the end of the age. Don't know about me, but he'll be standing. I'm not looking for a city to be transformed. I'm looking for a new city whose builder and maker is God. There's a heavenly perspective that God wants to give you as you get older and older and older. God wants to get you more revelation of himself to understand his love for you is unconditional and understand that he has the right, if you give it to him, to take everything away and give it back to you more beautiful than you ever dreamed. You don't lose anything by giving it away. Ever. Isn't that fun? Well, maybe not fun. (laughs) It's actually hell on earth. So, speed it up a little bit. That's that's the problem when you're 71, right? Your story gets longer the older you get. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's getting really long because I get really old. It's the old fart syndrome, you know. (laughs) So, man, I felt called. I got to teach the scriptures and the Bible and all that. So many, I met my wife during those years, the first three years. We got married uh, in my senior year at Biola. She was graduated and taught for a year, little church, little church school in Fullerton, California, and it was a great year. It was really fun. And we got invited to a, move to New Mexico on a, on a camp for Native American kids, 800 Cherokees and Apaches and wild. I mean, kids were wild. It was kind of fun. And it was a ranch, so we had 16 horses. We had to take care of it, cows and goats and Cleopatra, the, the donkey, the mule. She was a piece of work. And the camp, counselor, the camp director says to me, you need to teach a Bible study every night of the week to the, to the counselors. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, that won't be possible. He said, why not? He said, because I can't speak in front of people. I have, I later learned it's called selective mutism. And I literally, I can do this. I can talk with you, bro. You just have a beautiful little combo. But the minute I'm doing what I'm doing now with all of you, I would break out in hives. I'd get rash all on my skin. My high school teacher switched me from speech to drama because I could be somebody else, but I couldn't be myself. Um, I graduated from Bible University, three units deficient, speech. I couldn't do it. I end up here without a diploma just because of my fear of speaking in front of people. And Mindy says, okay, this is really bad. we got to get you free of this thing. I say, yeah, how are you going to do that? I have selective mutism. You don't just go around healing people of the, the inability to speak. She said, I don't know. I said, ask the Lord to do something for you. I said, okay, whatever. And I, I had no faith. Zero. So he invites me. We got invited to this meeting in Gallup, New Mexico. Went to, came late. It was a bunch of Pentecostals. Scared the crap out of me. I, I don't know what to do with Pentecostals quite yet. I, I dabbling in the Holy Spirit stuff, but I wasn't ready for these guys. I mean, they were, <laughs> woo! So I came late on purpose, and I sat in the back row on purpose, and I hid behind a really large individual on purpose. What I goofed is I wore a red shirt. 
and the speaker's going off. He's a completed Jew. Beautiful guy. Talking about Jesus in the Old Testament. It was just so gorgeous. And I'm drinking it. I'm taking notes, you know. And he stops and he says, young man in the very back in the red shirt hiding behind the person in front of you. <laughs> he said, step out, step out, come forward. Oh, man, here goes all the Pentecostal stuff. So he yelled at me. And he said, open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. He's quoting from the dialogue with God and, and, and uh, Moses. Right? Moses said, I, I can't. He said, furthermore, there's a curse on your mouth that was given to you when you were six years old. <laughs> That's exactly what that Shinto priest had done to me is he cursed my mouth and cursed my knowledge of God. And this guy broke that thing, read it in the spirit, broke it, said, come forward. He said, not only are you going to open your mouth, you're going to the nations. And he, and he says, I have a warning for you. If you ever stop preaching Jesus, he will take your ministry away from you. If you ever get diverted into other stuff in ministry, and Jesus is in the center part of everything you do, you will lose everything you have. Woo! I couldn't hit the deck fast enough. I'm on the ground. I'm groveling. I'm, you know, such a healing thing. And I went back. They couldn't get me to sit down and shut up. I had a sore release. I could teach all the Bible verses I've been preaching to the cactus and the horses. I can now preach to actual human beings. It was great fun. We ended up in California. Uh, after that year, we were kicked out, kicked out of the church, kicked out of the camp. Because we were actually hanging out with charismatics, which evidently was not what you should be doing. So I went and became college pastor in San Jose, California. I got kicked out of that. They, they said that I was teaching aberrant theology. And then my friend called and said, we're starting another church in South San Jose. Why don't you come help us? A year later, he left to go start a church in Southern Oregon. His brother took over the church. I became associate pastor. And his brother rolled into me one day and he said, you have been told, I, I, I need, I've been watching you, and I've come to the conclusion that you, John Peterson, have no measurable spiritual gifts. I said, like, <laughs> like zero, none, nada, zip. He said, none. You, get, you need to go back and paint houses for a living. So I said, okie dokie. So I got in the car and I said, okay, that's it. I was fired four times in three years. That's it. I told the Lord, don't call me again. Just It's over. I'm going to go make a lot of money. That's, I can't see any other reason for doing what I'm doing. I'm going to go get rich. <laughs> great, right? You go from serving God to having a really great goal to become a rich guy. Um, <clears throat> get home. How was your day, honey? You know, your wife is obligated to ask that question. How's the day? And I said, fantastic, I got fired. I got told I had 21 days to get out of the office. I was given a $400 severance check. And I was told I had no measurable spiritual gifts. And furthermore, I've had it. I'm not doing this anymore. So she didn't say a word. She came around, poked her finger in my chest, shoved me into this big chair, went around the backside, put her hand on my head, and said, dear God, don't listen to anything he's saying. <laughs> Because I was fumigating. And, she, and then she says, well, why don't we go to this really cool conference tonight at Calvary Community Church? And I said, 
you know, when you're bummed, last thing you want to do is go hang out with a bunch of rabid Christians. You know, a little too happy here. Just let me sulk a little bit. I get in there, I get in this workshop, this little side room, and this guy starts teaching on Jesus the Rock, and I think, why am I at a seminar about Jesus? Who didn't know Jesus the Rock? What a stupid, you know, anyway. He was an old, old fart with white shoes and a white fro, a white guy with a white fro. Looked like a mushroom and a red parrot shirt. And I thought, how can God ever move through a guy like that? I mean, you can see how bad off I was. I was really angry because I was living on earth trying to do heavenly stuff. I didn't realize Jesus was in the center of my life. I didn't realize he was using all this to get my heart. I didn't realize that this was the only way to become all that he wanted me to be, is to be so humiliated that my only recourse was to trust him. That's it. And so it happened again. I'm sitting there minding my business, and the guy speaks up, and he says, Oh, young yeah, man, you were just told that you had no measurable spiritual gifts. In fact, you were told that today. He said, I can hear the voice of the person speaking, saying, you have no measurable spiritual gifts. You were told that you had 21 days to get out of the office, and he gave you a $400 severance check. Furthermore, in the car, you resigned. You told God, don't call me again. You need to know that your resignation is denied. <laughs> and in six days, you're going to get a phone call from the throne room of heaven. I said, how's that, what does that look like? There's a long, twirly cord come down, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's me, Jesus. He said, you'll know it when it comes. Six days later, the guy that fired me, his brother who had moved to Oregon, didn't know that I had been fired by his brother, called me and said, I need you up here. Could you move up here and join us? Because we're just exploding with hippies. So he did. How faithful is God? Not my faithfulness. God is faithful because when he births us, he does a pretty amazing stuff. Um, when I went to Oregon. We started with 12 people. We ended up with 800 freakazoids. And I had 27 weddings in a row. And they were all done, n not one in a church building. They were all done in teepees and tree houses. And all, it was wild, <laughs> right? And uh, we had, my buddy called me. The guy that called me up there had phoned me. And he said, dude, I'm on Miguel Creek. I'm at the nudist colony. And I need you to get up here and help me do the baptism. <laughs> I said, you're doing a baptism in a nudist colony? He said, yeah, I, I am. And he said, man, it's wild. You're not sure where to put your hands. You know? <laughs> I mean, really, don't picture it. Don't picture it. So by the time I got there, it was all over. Man, was I glad. But it was crazy. I mean, they were walking around, you know. And stuff like that was happening all the time. And my mom came to visit. And we, had, we would go to Indian Mary Park and have our services out in the, outside. We'd camp all weekend and then have the service on Sunday. Rogue River is right there, and we would just turn around and baptize everyone that came to the Lord every Sunday. It was so much fun. My mom's visiting. She comes with her tweed suit with Mikimoto pearls and her little page boy haircut and her little pumps, you know, her little shoes, missionary issue shoes. And she, she's sitting in between these two huge guys 
two huge, I mean, they were large hippies with long hair and braided and ribbons in there, I mean, the whole bit. And she looked so out of place. I felt for her. So I started preaching on Ephesians 1, 14, 15, 16, 17. I pray that you might have a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Christ. The eyes of your hope, heart open, that you might see the hope of his calling, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, exceeding greatness of his power towards them that believe. And my mom burst into tears. And I thought, oh boy, this is so bad she's crying, you know. <laughs> so I got all insecure. And later in the car going home, I said, Mom, what on earth? What was that about? She said, ah, I never told you. My mom was like a, a military sergeant, you know, black and white, um, one of 11 children, tough as nails, you know, climbed all the mountains in Japan. I mean, she was just one of these wild women for God. Prayed every morning at six, you know, had the prayer list and just did all the all the stuff, you know, not my style. And she said, well, I didn't tell you this, but on the day you were born, you were a miracle, you know that. She said, but on the day you were born, I gave you back to God. And I said, what do I name this guy? And the Lord said, name him David, or name him J Jonathan, because he'll be a, a friend to the Davids of the earth. He will actually lay his crown down to make others great. And he said, furthermore, he gave me a text for your life, and it was Ephesians 1, 14 through 18. <laughs> the very text that I was teaching on, on the day that she heard me preach for the first time. You know, you have those moments of divine when you realize God's really in charge of things. It was one of those moments, those prophecies, moments like that. So I'm going to fast forward. We moved to Amsterdam. We joined YWAM, went to Kona. Uh, did three months leadership training school. Met up with a guy named Floyd McClung, who we'd met in California at pastor's conferences. <coughs> invited us to come. We stayed about 14 years in Amsterdam. And really, I that period of time from that, that whole getting fired, that whole hippie season was really painful. Because I had an idea that the church should be a community and not an organizational construct. I didn't know how to pull that off because we didn't really get along very well. We didn't know how to get along. We didn't know how to love one another from the heart. Um, so it got bad. It got really bad. We lost people. I lost my friends. Uh, had friends write us off. I had my other friends who didn't like each other this way. And I just said, Lord, I'm not leaving. The only way I'll go is if you call me somewhere else. And we, we fulfilled a real faithful five-year period there. And the cool thing is that church is still going today. That's pretty cool. So a friend of mine came in and took the church so that Mindy and I could go to Kona, to YWAM. We went to, I tell you, I, I, I sat in Amsterdam in my new 350-square-foot apartment with my three kids. <laughs> I'd sit on my couch and put my feet out and we'd go into the hallway, you know? <laughs> it was the best place we ever lived because it was home. And we, we would come back, you know, the States and how can you do that? You know, one lady said, how can you subject your children to this wicked city? You know, and I, and, and I walked away from her and the Lord said, you're making me happy. You're making me happy. And I'm with you and I'm your security net. She said, how can you subject these children? 
you're, you don't have your pension and your 401k and all that. I've never had that. I'm not sure I ever will. Uh, I don't, that's just not my call. Nothing wrong with it. Many of you have that, and you should. It's just not what God's called me to do, uh, especially back in those days. And we would say to families all the time, it's not dangerous to bring you to Amsterdam, any more dangerous than to bring you to Denver, Colorado. The question is, are you supposed to be there? If people go to Amsterdam all on a big adventure thing and say, ooh, we're going to serve God, you're going to get clobbered. If you have the call of God and you know it, there's no safer place for your children. doesn't mean things won't happen to them. It just means God will cover it, he'll redeem it, he'll restore, and he did. My kids went through hell living in that city. But they're better for it. They know how to navigate in an urban culture. They're multilingual, multicultural. My daughter worked for the Attorney General of the United States as a personal assistant because she knew the world. She knew how to navigate with leaders because we've been doing that all our lives. She would host all of our conferences as a little 17-year-old. She knew how to do it. She's a travel agent now, and she does, still does the DOJ lawyers, attorneys, travel from those years way back when she worked with them. What's, what's going on when you're in your... I was heading into my 40s. What's going on in your 40s, 30s, 40s? Very critical. Jesus is trying to show you that you're really good at what you do. <laughs> right? Because think about it. When you were an idealistic 20-something, and now that you are in your 30s or your 40s, look at the acumen that you've gotten. Look how good you get at things. Look, look at kind of the, the network of friends that increases over time. Look at the lessons you learned. Look at the anger that you had towards the church that he's having to deal with right now. Right? People are pissed off at church structure, at, at the pyramid system, sacred, secular, clergy, lady, all, all of those paradigms. People are just really upset about that. And we have exiles running all over the place. And I want to say to you, God is saying to his church, come home. Let me beautify you. Come home. I'm not called you to a construct. I've called you to a family. So we're on, a, we're on a quest to find the family of God that he says in 1 Corinthians 12, he places us in the body as he sees fit so that Dave and John six years ago get connected. That was the Lord that brought us together and that. You can believe God to do that for you. Pray that prayer. Connect me to the people I'm supposed to be with. Well, a lot of, a lot of the young guys ask me all the time, I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with my life. What am I supposed to do? I said, you're asking the wrong question. The question is, who should you be with? If you're with the right people, they will actually be the answer to helping you find the rail to run on and they will be your support system, and you will for them. There's a collaborative na nature to the kingdom of God in the family of God. Nobody ever will find their dream fulfilled in isolation. Ever. You might be successful by the world standards, but you will never be successful in God's standards unless you're rightly connected to his family. So the enemy beats us up at that level. And all the offenses taken and the hurts of human interaction and all the pain and 
you have no measurable spiritual gifts, and all that kind of stuff that we all encounter, abandonment and betrayal and all of that. I'm here to tell you, that's to get your feet off the ground and get a perspective in God that's bigger than your pain. And that's your birthright. That's your birthright. He's blessed you with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. He has saved you. He's loved you. He's redeemed you. He's cleaned you up. He's predestined you for a purpose. He sent his Holy Spirit as as the, who's the guys at the bank? The the notary. The notary public. He stamps that thing and says, done deal. You're going to inherit my entire deal. Sealed it in Christ. That's your birthright. And the enemy's whole thing is to argue with God and say, I can get him off that. I can get her off that. I can convince him not to do that. I can convince him that you're just a bag of hot air sitting on some ethereal throne perpetrating all sorts of platitudes and they don't like you and they don't love you and you've let them down and they know it. Nasty stuff. All right, let's just stop. Getting a little late. Questions? Comments? (laughs) Comments? (laughs) Pontificants? Yeah. Um, they, they were aware of some stuff. There's so much going on behind them that they knew nothing about. Uh, they knew, of course, I was abducted twice and freaked out, you know, but they didn't know what happened to this, you know, they've gone to be with the Lord five, six years ago. And they never did find out what actually happened to me. I never felt to tell them. It just, there was just no point. But I did tell them that I'd learn about spiritual warfare through what I'd gone through and that I thought that missionaries needed to be prepped in that a lot more than they were. And Dad agreed. He said, I agree. Um, they, they knew about my depression and anger. My, my mom used to say, where'd the little boy go that I used to have who was so happy and bright and cheerful and just droopy and sad? You know. But she didn't know what happened behind to create that depression. Yeah. Did you see that happen? And was that hard? Because it sounds like you were just like, really? You laid down the Yeah, I, I have a calling and a gift for leadership, you know, and I've got, I've done leadership all my life. I've always been a reluctant leader. I've never sought out to be a leader of anything, ever. I always had to be encouraged to step in and stuff until I was 45. Then I had a total turnaround, and the Lord bawled me out for being a reluctant leader. So if I called you, there should be total confidence. And enough of this false humility crap that you're doing. I was very chastised, and I loved it. It was great. Um, I have served some of the most amazing leaders in the world. Uh, Lauren Cunningham and Floyd McClung 
Ed Silvosa, who was one of the founders of the whole city transformation movement, Argentine leader, served him for three years. Uh, John Dawson, who really got the whole city reaching thing going in 1990. I mean, it just goes on and on. I helped start IHOP with Mike Bickle. I helped start 24-7 Prayer with Pete Gregg uh, globally. You know, it just, I found myself, I, I was right with Chuck Smith and the whole Jesus. How many of you saw Jesus Revolution? Did you, any, any of you see that movie? Recommend you see it. That's my story. We were there in that place at that time watching all that stuff go on. So I've always had the grace from the Lord never to want to be more than what I was at the moment. I didn't aspire or compete with the leaders I was serving. I never wanted to be the number one guy. And what I learned was number, that language, number one, is a pyramid language. It's it's a, a paradigm, a, a, an organizational paradigm in a ladder climbing language. And I realized God's not preparing me for more of that. Yeah. He's using ministry to prepare me for more of himself, yeah. which is very different. And so I needed to be completely at rest with not being seen or heard, or get the invite to the conferences. I used to get all the invites to stuff. And slowly I realized I can get more done by not being seen, by being underground, little incognito, <laughs> and be a spy. I always wanted to be a spy. I used to read Robert Loveland books, and man, if I could just be a spy, it'd be so great. American Embassy in Tokyo asked me if I wanted to go into Secret Service, and I got home, told my mom, that was it. Said, there's no way you're signing up for that. <laughs> Broke my heart. <laughs> Anybody else? Then we'll round it. Yeah. So what were some of the most important keys to connecting and building those fellowships, friendships, especially in an international context where in-group, out-group lines are more pronounced? Yeah. So you've got all the power structures. You've got uh, wealthy cultures, poor cultures. You've got color of skin. You've got, um, of course, you've always got the social economic stratas. You've got all of that. We had 40 different nationalities on our team in Amsterdam, 40. Then you always have the male-female thing, and you have the old and young thing. So, man, you've got so many <laughs> pieces coming at you. And what we learned is really cool, that we led our work of 350 missionaries. There are 12 of us as leaders. Uh, they give them the responsibility. And we saw ourselves as equippers of the others. We, we tried to make sure that we didn't always come up with all the vision and that relationship was more important than transaction. Getting things done was not our goal. Being like Jesus was our goal. That meant if we had a thing to do and my brother next to me, my sister next to me was struggling, and unable to help make the decision, we stopped everything and focused on them. And when that got right, God spoke, we were clear, and we went out the door and did our thing. We just learned to prefer one another, in honor preferring one another. We learned that you, you, God doesn't give you a ministry to run. God gives you a ministry to surrender to him. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the cornerstone of the church. We have no business building something that he hasn't commissioned us to do. And if we do do what he didn't tell us to do, he has no obligation to finish it. So you go through enough 
failures doing your thing in the name of God, that you realize, I'm going to slow down, back up, and love you with all my heart. And there's something about loving you and you and you that will allow God to start moving in us, and we can start moving together with a sense of what God's got for us. God moved in on us in 1990, shut us down, 350 missionaries. He walked in the door in a, in a strategic planning season. We have two months set aside for budgets, plans, the whole thing. Teams going all over the world, 19 nations, church plants in Siberia. I mean, we were hot stuff. We had planted uh, churches with ex-prostitutes. I almost said prostitutes. You don't plant a church with prostitutes. Ex-prostitutes. <laughs> <clears throat> Punks. We had a punk church. We had weirdos everywhere, and we were leading them to the Lord. Uh, drug addicts, pimps, satanic church, the high priest of Satan came to the Lord. I mean, wild stuff. We had a lot to pat ourselves in the back for. And the Lord walked in on us because we got in a planning session, and I'm leading that planning session, and I couldn't get past my friends who all they wanted to do was read Bible verses and pray. I think, what is you have plenty of time to read the Bible and pray. We're trying to do a strategic planning thing here, for God's sake. You know, I, I was in bad shape. And my buddy speaks up, John Goodfellow, and he says, I realize I came to these meetings to fight for my budget over your budget. Because I think what I'm doing is more important than what you're doing. And someone else said, you know what, I had the same motivation. Another one said, I don't even want to be here. I'm too tired. <laughs> Another one just, and I thought, okay, just got shot to hell. There, there's nothing to do now. I mean, what are you going to do? And my, my buddy who said, you know, uh, I came to fight for my budget, falls on the ground and starts crying. He just weeps. And one other guy said, I feel like I'm supposed to read Isaiah 40. I know Isaiah 40. That's not a verse, you, a chapter you want to read in the middle of a strategic planning session. <laughs> right? He just starts glorifying God and the majesty of the Lord and all this stuff. And the room started breaking down in, in, in tears. And by the end of the, the morning, we were all on the ground, realizing that we had usurped Jesus' place in the calling of the ministry and that we had no leg to stand on. So we did that for three days. Never got one stitch of work done. And the Lord, the Lord made it really clear, you've got to go to the whole staff, 350 of them, and repent and tell them that you've, you've missed me and you've gotten arrogant and you've led from above and not from under. So we call it Black Friday. The Friday that we had to gather our, all of our staff and let them have it about all of our sins. And we did. A lady came up to me afterwards, I'll never forget, and she said, this is really helpful. <laughs> now I realize why we're all struggling so bad. You guys are a mess. <laughs> I think, great. Thank you for your identification of repentance. You know, identifying with those who confess. Three months, nothing. Our, we come and gather before the Lord. Nothing happened. The Lord was very clear. Do not bring conviction to the staff. This is my business. Um, we had two, two friends of ours roll in in January of 1991. Never forget it. And as he came into our room from the airport, this one gentleman said, 
I feel like there's going to be a disaster in the city in three days, but don't worry, God's going to bring a lot of good from it and protect a lot of people. A storm came out three days later that no one had predicted. An absolute nightmare of a storm. People were actually blown off the ground and pushed into things. I came out of a pizza restaurant and all the taxis were in the middle of the city by the central station, all pointing their noses at each other. And the guys were standing on top of the taxis, cursing the heavens. I thought, what on earth? It's like a demonic outpouring on the city. So I went, I walked to our building about 20 minutes away, and I reported to my friends. I said, guys, we got it. Whoo, this is going to be hairy. I'm not even sure some of our guys should come tonight. It's really dangerous. Everybody came. I couldn't find the speaker. We'll go up to his room, knock on the door. He's in his skibbies. His hair has exploded, and he's sleeping. He's on jet lag. So he comes and he says, hey, is that a wind out there? I said, yeah. He says, ah, this is what the Lord was talking about. We're going to have a spectacular evening. The Lord's going to come and do an amazing thing. I thought, right, pal, get your pants on, for God's sake. I mean, what? <laughs> I've never been in a meeting like that. Heaven came down and glory filled the house. That's all I can say. And our, our dear staff got smacked by the Lord. I mean, there were prophecies. There were signs. There was a couple healings. There's repentance all over the place. We shut the whole ministry down for six months just to be in the presence of God. So when I say to people, I had a guy in Nashville last week, a beautiful entrepreneur. He runs a whole fourth floor of this big building. It's all entrepreneurs. They're all in there, and they all love Jesus, and they're all doing stuff for God. So the first question he asked me when I rolled into his boardroom was, so... What are your objectives and goals? And what are your, I said, you know, you're speaking as a businessman right now. Well, you need to do that in your business environment. Believe me, you need to do that. I, I get that. In my world, trying to serve you, we don't start there. When you put your kingdom hat on, it's not about objectives and goals. It's now about obedience and listening to God and being friends. We connect, we hear God, and we obey. He said, that's it? I said, well, yeah, that's it. But that's the hardest that's it you'll ever do in your life, you know. Got involved back in the States uh, in the 90s with City Transformation with the Argentine guys. Uh, We were in 50 cities a year. Um, Crazy. Moved to Sacramento during those days. Started the Sacramento Pastors Prayer Network. When I, when I got to Kansas City after Sacramento in 1999, that's when Floyd McClung and Mike Bickle had conspired to bring, <laughs> to bring me into town so that I could help the pastors do their prayer and unity thing. And Mike was leaving the church so that he could start IHOP, International House of Prayer. And Floyd was taking over Metro Church, so it was a little triangle. Um, I broke down. I got to Kansas City, and it's just like I, I had no energy left. I had no juice. I was 47, 46, 7, 8. I couldn't remember. <laughs> Senility is setting in. You know, 
husbands as I speak. And the, the, my guys let me just go to a kind of a beautiful thing called Healing for the Nations. It was a, a Marietta, Georgia. It was kind of a retreat center. And I can tell you guys, it was the first time in my life that I had an encounter with the father to let me know that I was his son. And I wasn't an orphan. That message of you're alone, you'll always be alone. And if you left the room, no one would notice. It's gone. It left. He said, I love you with everlasting love. He said, I... Um, when you wake up in the morning, just realize you're my son and you're not obligated to do anything. In fact, all those who are led by the Spirit of God, the same are sons of God. I'm going to teach you how to live that way. And I thought, oh, please. Yes, please. Double yes, please. I'm so weary of me. I'm so weary of trying to figure my life out. And I laid it down. And I have to tell you guys, there's something so magical in God about not having any care about where you go or what you do or how you look or how you smell or how you come across or what you say or what you don't say or what you think about. It's just there's a father in heaven who looks down on you and he's madly in love and you can't escape it. You can turn it away, but you can't escape it. He, God is a pursuing God. The whole book of the book of Song of Solomon is written to show the pursuing love of God with, with, of course, with Solomon and the maidens that he's chasing all around. It's a picture of God and his church. He's chasing us. All, all of this culmination is more Jesus to love and invite the cross into your life to be realize that the people that are in your circle right now are there by God's choosing. So love them well. Now, if you get so directive and so into what we're doing that people pay the price, in the corporate structure of the church, people have paid a very high price. We have abused our business leaders by inviting them to be on our boards to raise money for our buildings, for Pete's sake. That's a travesty. Who's going to spend time with the business leaders equipping them there is no one more out of touch with the reality of culture than a pastor. They're totally out of touch. I'm a pastor, I can say that. I've pastored all my life. I've been in more pastors' conferences than the Apostle Paul. <laughs> so I'm pretty sure he didn't go to any of those. <laughs> I mean, there's, I've never been in a place of more insecurity. We're comparing who's got the biggest church, who's got the most ministries, who's got the greatest worship leaders. And I just think, God's sitting in heaven holding his nose. What on earth does that have to do with a family that loves each other, that is dangerous, goes into the culture and loves the heck out of people and isn't worried about titles and retirement systems and all of this. There, there is a conversion that God's church is having right now around money. There needs to be a conversion. We are not in the buying and selling industry in the church. We are to be in the giving and receiving. Those that serve the church should expect nothing from anybody. Only one church ever gave Paul any money that we know of, and it's, it's the smallest, poorest church, Philippian church. 
But he kept going because he was called of God. God raised up the tent-making outlet for him, which is great. God also raised up 66 culture people. They were benefactors. They were business leaders. They were, they were governors. Uh, the mayor of Corinth was a guy named Erastus. He actually, Paul sent Erastus with Timothy to go to Thessalonica to establish the church. They were on the mission of God with, church, with apostolic church leaders. They weren't solicited for their money. They were asked to become partners in the gospel enterprise. That's a lot more fun. I was telling some guys tonight, I, I, I'm surrounded by business guys. I think one reason is I don't want anything from them. If God tells them, give John X, Y, Z, great. But I'll never bullseye somebody and say he has the potential to help get me out of my, my debt or pay next month's payroll. Can never do that in the family of God. We have to lay our lives down, expect nothing, and trust God to be our provider. And without that, I'll tell you, the church is suffering by the centrality of money and so much of what we do. And I, I, I speak with love for the church because God told me back in 1999, you can't change what you don't love. If you want to, I wrote a book called, you know, Unraveled. <clears throat> and um, it was the idea was that we had to make sure the church was transformed so that the culture could be transformed. Reform the church, transform the culture. Um, and I still believe that very heavily in my heart. Okay, we're at 8 o'clock. <laughs> There's more to the story, but in the interest of time, I'm going to give it to Matt. I'm right here on my little cool stool here. <laughs> Thank you. 
She would go nuts, yeah. Yeah, and this is like, again, going back to family, loving the ones well that are that are in in your circle, and I guess go back reverberating. That's beautiful. Yay, Amy. Yay. All of that. Um, yeah, I wish you who I am today if you didn't do what you did and if you weren't obedient to God. Wow, thank so, you. Thank you for doing that. Um, thank you for changing my life. And, um, yeah, I just honor you. Thanks, Amy. That's really precious. Thank you. Yeah. As opposed to like, um, sometimes it feels a lot, a lot, a lot harder to change it from the inside as opposed to like, okay, we're just going to leave that and do something totally different. Right. And hopefully that will, right. you know, that will crumble and fall and like fall apart and we'll be able to like sweep up the edges. <laughs> yeah. How, how many of you resonate with that? that? Right? Loving the church. There's nothing in scripture about loving the church framework. There's nothing about loving the construct that it's become. What we love is what Jesus died to make his family. And he didn't make it to be led by one person. He didn't make it to have a sacred secular divide down the middle where there are the ministry leaders and the not ministry people. He didn't die to make a sacred secular split. So that what we do is more sacred. And dear old Donnie, who's down here, actually just an old businessman. God help him. You know? And he comes and gets pumped up on Sunday, and then he goes back and deals with the Philistines the rest of the week. You know, I mean, come on. None of that. Thank you for the amen. 
<laughs> but I, what I say to people all the time is, do not leave your church without permission from the Lord and do it at the right time or not at all. Maybe God's, some people are actually called to stay inside the construct and be reformers. It's a calling. Others are not called to that at all. In fact, they stay too long. Many people, there's so much spiritual abuse or just um, no relational capital in the place. There's, there's nothing, no interchange of humans. Disciples aren't being made, you know. So I never tell someone, leave your church because you're frustrated. And make sure if you leave, you get it from the Lord and that you bless backwards and that you resolve any, any things in that church that are not quite settled yet with relational issues. Uh, make sure you go to the people. They may or may not receive it, but do your part. It's a biggie. Thank you. Thank you, Christian. Yeah. So ministry is whatever God gives you to do in your life is the ministry. It's the word diakonia, right? Diakonos, to serve. So the only thing the world understands about the church is that the church decides to serve the culture. They get that. They expect us to. When we do that, I have, it's a long, long teaching I will not go into, but the whole idea of benefaction and, and doing good, there's two Greek words for it, I won't go into it, only to say there's distinctly a good that anybody can do for any other human being. It's built into us because we're made in the image of God. There's another good that you only get by the power of the Spirit. That's a different word. Both words are used in Titus 3, 1 through 8. Check it out. Very interesting. But when we start defining our business leaders and our educators and our scientists, I, I ran into this couple up in Boulder who were astrophysicists, both of them married to each other. And I had a whole Sunday to lay hands on people in the church who had never been commissioned into their ministry in the marketplace. That's all we did. We just laid hands on them and slapped oil on everybody and did the shandalamahukia stuff. You know, and it was the line went all the way to the back door. You had teachers, you had scientists. They gave the service to that couple the next week who talked about the breakthrough they'd had when they realized that they're calling to be astrophysicists to unpack the creation of God to culture was the ministry of God to them. And everyone stood up and screamed and yelled and cheered, you know. That's the way it should be. We're cheering each other's ministry. And sometimes that ministry is not seen and it's minuscule and it's in incubation stage. Other times it's in full-fledged multiplication and going nuts. Different times of life. 
you and you reach out to them, I believe you can assure you that we're created in the image of a singular world and we cannot have our full identity if we are <laughs> Preach it, sister. And, um, so good. I just, uh, it's just amazing how in, in your story, the wrestle, the wrestle in, there isn't a wrestle in the Trinity for who's, who's the more powerful to this right. Or like who's, like, oh, I'm threatened by the Father because we talk about this way, and the Spirit gets to do this, but I don't get, I mean, there is an overflow of one into the other. Yeah. And how when I self-identify, I um, or I think, oh, I'm just made in the image of a singular. Yeah. And forget the fact that we have a belonging, for belonging, that I actually am making the part of me that shows up fully as myself. Yeah. And allow Shelby to show fully as herself, and Matt to show up as himself. And we're not in competition over anything. I just get a four over, and she pours over, and he pours over, and we just are in this loving, belonging, singular. That's so good. So that plural at the same time, because I, I think that the Trinity kind of like put something in me because I keep running into it. So thank you. We like to say that the Father <coughs> makes us sons and daughters. Jesus, the servant king, makes us servants of the king. And the Spirit of the Lord has been sent to manifest us as ambassadors to all of culture. We, we have this little teaching called gospel identity. How do we get our gospel in the Trinity? And how do we live that out without being schizophrenic, you know, without being bi tripolar, you know? Oh, it's a life from the pit. It, it's nasty. Thank you so much, Donnie. Man. That's so cool. Nothing gives me more joy than that. In my in my my world, there is no such thing as retirement. I don't live to retire. I will retire someday because God will just put me on the pasture, chew my cud, you know, with the cows. I had a guy in Tulsa roll up to me as an elder in the church I'd been working with for 15 years. Beautiful man, prayer intercessor, and he rolled up to me and he said. 
he was really not doing good that day. He was feeling, he was quite a bit older than I am, and he was hurting. I could tell he was hurting, suffering from whatever ailment he was going through. And he came up to me kind of like this, and then he just came alive. It's like the Spirit of the Lord hit him. And he came alive and he said, you are going strong till you're 85 years old. And, you know, that was meant to encourage me. Uh, uh, What happens after 85? (laughs) But I got it. It it was actually very encouraging because he said, you're not going to flinch. You don't need to flounder. You don't need to kind of try to make things happen like everyone thinks you're supposed to when you get to be my age. You just keep going. You just keep doing what God's told you to do. And I, I seriously have more fun than most, most people. You know, I sit in the cigar lounge with all my cigar buddies, and they're talking about their golfing expeditions and all this stuff. And I just think, I love golf, but not that much. You know, I get to do this, you know, hang out with the saints. And I get this connive with government and business leaders about social um, collective impact initiatives for whole states. And I have a friend that's a governor of Tennessee. I met him 32 years ago. Who know, How do you orchestrate that stuff? And now the door is open. I say to the residents when I'm in town, he calls me his spiritual advisor, you know, all this kind of nonsense. And the, that prophecy I got in New Mexico that night where they opened my mouth, he said, open your mouth. He said, God will bring you before kings and governors for my name's sake and you're to release the gospel to them. And when I met Bill, he was 30 years old, and we met in Czechoslovakia back in the day, in Prague. He came back the next year for a conference I was doing so that he could just hang out with me. He spoke, uh, we, we were talking in the back of a widow's garden, this beautiful lady loved Jesus. And I asked him, I said, what's the dream in your heart? And he said, I have this weird feeling that I'd love to be the governor of Tennessee someday. And I said, okay, that's random. And he says, don't tell anybody. It's probably just ridiculous. I said, hold that one because I think something's going to happen. So every year that we saw each other over the years, 30 years, it was a big joke. How's that governor thing going? And then a year and a half before he actually put his name in for the first first uh, go around he called and said you won't believe this but I think I'm supposed to put my name in so he flew me out to Tennessee we sat on the 31st floor of a condominium complex and smoked cigars and drank whiskey and talked about the possibility of him running for governor that Friday he signed up to run and his wife had a visitation of the Lord the night before and said this is of me and I'll be with you and you need to do this and they went from seventh in the Republican primary to first. They went up against a very strong Democratic guy. And he went negative on them and lost the election because of it. And they wouldn't fight back. So, so now it's been really fun, you guys, because we're in Tennessee. We're working uh, in 95 counties with the Faith-Based Initiatives Office, the young man that Bill appointed named Lance Helio. And we're just having fun. We did a greenhouse. We're finishing the greenhouse next week. Uh, after after Thanksgiving, and these guys are in their 40s, 50s, and early 60s, and they are they're ready to roll. They're ready to take Nashville for Jesus. This is great fun. What's happening? 
So Ken and I, my partner, just roll in and pretty much smile. We just kind of, we have a little leverage, you know. We roll out our teaching and then we just watch them become friends. We watch them hear the Lord. We watch them begin to get strategies from God. We watch other leaders start connecting. And now you can start seeing this, this viral network starting to emerge. It's really exciting. So that's a little pitch in what we're doing. I'm done. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you want to connect further, please visit us at www.cdchurch.org.